This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. And if you can hear that in the background, that is the Mississippi River. And that's where we are right now because that is the topic of today's podcast. Where does the river begin? It's a frigid day out here on the Stern Arch Bridge, but there's plenty of runners and bicyclists and walkers who are enjoying the day. And we can see the mist coming off of the river just below the St. Anthony Falls. So it's a perfect place to ask people about where the Mississippi River begins. Somewhere in Canada, but I don't know where. I actually saw a TV show once, if I remember correctly, that it's in northern Minnesota. It starts out as like a spring, and then here's what we got. I'm pretty sure it starts in like northern Minnesota and ends in the Gulf of Mexico. I think it probably starts with some wells. Yeah, probably a bunch of wells with some small tributaries that connect. It starts wherever rain falls in the watershed of the Mississippi. So it could be my backyard, the street in front of my school. It starts everywhere, not only up at Itasca. Itasca State Park. Itasca State Park. That's Itasca, right? Well, have you been there before? Many times. What is your memories of it? There's lots of people there, but there's rocks. You can kind of walk across it. It's pleasant. It is the connotation of having the river. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I just remember walking across the stones. This question from reader Edward Merzen sounds simple enough, but the source of the Mississippi River was once a hugely consequential mystery in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, and it remains a topic of debate in some circles to this day. We'll delve into all of this today with Connie Cox, the lead interpretive naturalist at Itasca State Park. Well, Connie, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We're talking about the Mississippi River here. So let's just put this into some context. Sure. The Mississippi River is oftentimes known as the heart waters of America. Starting here at Lake Itasca in Itasca State Park in northwest Minnesota, the river will flow about 2,318 miles before it hits the Gulf of Mexico. And for those of you in Minnesota, we should be proud because about 30% of the total river's length is right here in our own state. Today we're talking about Lake Itasca and the headwaters of the Mississippi River. So for those of us who are not hydrologists or geologists, help define what headwaters means. Sure. The headwaters is actually a collecting point where water will gather and from that point it will flow out or leave from a specific source or spot. Itasca State Park is in a horseshoe-shaped basin that was formed by glaciers 10,000 years ago. Think about like a coffee cup and our park, it's 32,000 acres, is that coffee cup. And all our 100 lakes and rivers are along the inside rim of that cup. And at the very bottom of the cup is Lake Itasca. And so all this water from these lakes and rivers will flow down to the very bottom point. And from Lake Itasca, the Mississippi River will actually begin. And our early park founder, Jacob Brower, he actually was commissioned to come and resolve issues over the source of the river. And he's sort of the father of the hydrology and watershed theory, because when he did his research, he looked around. A lot of people, scientists around the world said, you know, the beginning of a river starts in a cloud. It starts on the highest point on a ridge. 
starts on the biggest lake. It's the smallest rivulet. There were definitions all over. But when he came to Lake Itasca in 1888 and 1889 and surveyed, he noticed that all these waters contributed to Lake Itasca. But even during a drought, only at the north end was the river flow its surface flow and volume large enough to be considered a river because all the other rivers coming in were drying up. And so he took all those philosophies from other scientists from around the world and he concluded that a headwaters or a beginning of a river needs to have a surface flow or volume that's continual throughout the year. And it's a collecting basin of water. You know, obviously, as you're sort of alluding to there, you know, there was debate about this and what have you. And I think we should talk about the fact that it's not just about bragging rights. Historically, there was actually a pretty important reason why we needed to figure out if this was the headwaters or not, right? Right, it is. It deals with the establishment of the United States of America when the various people from Europe began emigrating to the United States and declaring land for their own nations, primarily France, Spain, and England, a lot of people began coming to this new North America. Even though there had been people living here for 10,000 years, and those indigenous cultures had already named our lakes and rivers, these newcomers coming to the region began establishing and settling. Well, the story revolves around the Revolutionary War, when the colonists were struggling for their freedom from British rule. And after the Revolutionary War, when England acknowledged these colonists as a new nation known as the United States of America, they used the Mississippi River as our western boundary. The only problem is they didn't have it fully mapped. It was mapped from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to St. Anthony Falls in Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And then the only other point they had mapped is that funny little chimney on the north end of Minnesota, that funny point known as Angle Inlet. But they did not know where the river went in between. And in the Paris Peace Treaty that established the United States of America, it said that the Mississippi began due west of Angle Inlet. However, if you look at a map, Lake Itasca is straight south, but the people didn't know. And that ushered in a whole parade of explorers to look for the source of the river. Because where it was would determine who had control over what land, basically? Exactly. And everybody, of course, wanted the biggest slice of pie. So the British were hoping it was further south, closer to St. Anthony Falls. The Americans were hoping it was further north and further west of Angle Inlet so their slice of pie could be bigger. And just to clarify, is Angle Inlet actually a part of the Mississippi River? It is not a part of the Mississippi River. They had that a little bit wrong. It is not directly connected to the Mississippi River. So there's explorers that go out looking for this, and we don't have time to get into every single one of them, but what would be sort of the most significant journey where we really establish some of the facts that we know today about Lake Itasca? The most significant one was in 1832. Henry Rose Schoolcraft had been to the area in 1820, but they never got all the way to Lake Itasca. And in 1832, he did have the chance to come back another time. And as he came, he was lucky enough to meet Osawin Dib, an Ojibwa man who was traveling east to a rendezvous to trade furs. And Schoolcraft convinced him to come back and guide him to the source of the Mississippi. And so on July 3rd, 
1832, Osawan Dib and the Schoolcraft Expedition Party traveled down what is today known as the Schoolcraft River and portaged through the woods from Lake Alice into what is now today Itasca State Park. They came and crossed in our east arm near where Douglas Lodge is located today, and he was given credit as discovering the source. But many explorers are always challenged by other explorers and other people began doing a finer research of the Itasca Basin and is Itasca truly the source? And then Jacob Brower was commissioned to truly resolve this whole issue, to put all these parade of explorers to rest. And when Jacob Brower came to Itasca in 1888 and 1889, he did that survey of the basin I had mentioned earlier. And he did conclude that Schoolcraft was correct and that the naming of Lake Itasca and the river as the indigenous as people had done for thousands of years stands as the correct answer to the true source of the Mississippi. Well, and to clarify from that, so did the Native people already know this and basically they just led schoolcraft to this site? I mean, was it already well known then, I guess, within the Indigenous community that this was the source? Yes, it was. They are the ones who had named it. They're the ones who had named many of the lakes and rivers. And so they already were naming the Mississippi. Even sections of the Mississippi had a specific name. So you knew where to meet someone on the river. And so the Mississippi had always been known as that. It's an Algonquian dialect. That means the great river spread over a large area. They had named Lake Itasca. Its true name was Omash Coos, which means red deer or elk, because elk had at one time lived along the lake shores of Itasca. But I always say, you know, the difference was Schoolcraft actually met someone who lived in the area. Osawindib lived on Star Island in Cass Lake. And the other important thing is Schoolcraft actually asked for directions. He asked him, do you know the source? Can you lead me there? And that was the big defining difference in Osawindib being their guide is because this was Osawindib's homeland. This is where he hunted and gathered and he knew it like the back of his hand. And so he led Schoolcraft directly here. Okay. And so Itasca is actually a combination of Latin words, right? Meaning truth and head? That's correct. It's veritas, which means truth or true, and caput, which means head. On the one hand, it sounds like, okay, we settled that whole situation. And then again, if you look at the pages of our own newspaper in the last number of years, there are people who call this into question. Why is this a live issue? Is there an ongoing debate about this? It seems oftentimes that there is still a debate where we use science, such as the surface flow or volume should be the determining factor for the big beginning of a river or the longest river in the system should be considered the source. And oftentimes people disregard the cultural story. And I commend our early explorers and map makers in retaining the original cultural names of the rivers, because these people remember the indigenous cultures have been living here for, you know, 9,000 years in this area, and they had already named it. So sometimes we have this conflict where the story comes back. Is this really the source because we're saying it's strictly science being volume or length versus the cultural story of the original people who lived along these river systems. So, you know, I think that brings up stories oftentimes and new interesting perspectives, but I do believe that by retaining the cultural stories of the people who lived along them and named them that this truly is the Mississippi River Corridor, since that is what it has been called for thousands of years. 
And just to clarify, so is there some piece of science that is sort of trying to dispute that? Like, I guess I'm not clear on what specifically they would be saying to say it's not the headwaters. A lot of times what I hear is the research is length, that oftentimes Europeans measure everything by length. When talking with others in this area, some of the people from the Ojibwa communities, they've always been curious as to why we always have to measure everything in length. And that a river system is part of the whole functioning system, part of the circle of life and the circle flow. And so I think oftentimes when you read the stories, it always revolves around the length and what is the longest. And so the Missouri River is the one that oftentimes gets coverage or the rivers such as the Minnesota and others because they are longer or further west. But again, they had their names. They were named by the indigenous cultures way before European Americans came to this area. And so it's kind of a conflict between shall we use science and what's the longest river channel and call that the Mississippi or should we use the cultural name? And when you say and, length, you mean like the longest tributary in other words? Correct. The longest tributary. Oh. So the Missouri River would be the longest tributary. So if you were using length and the longest tributary, well, then that section of the river going into the Gulf of Mexico would then be considered the Missouri all the way down if you were maybe using that and overriding the cultural naming. But as you said, Lake Itasca is sort of this reservoir that's collecting a number of different streams and things in the area. It is the starting point in that sense. Correct. Yep. So you talk about that cultural legacy of Lake Itasca, which leads us to the fact that it's a very popular place to visit. And people walk across these rocks that are in the middle of the narrow part of the beginning of the river. And that has sort of led over the years to some changes to what it looks like, right? Which had to be restored recently. Correct. For over 130 years, Itasca has just been loved to death. Everybody wants to step across the beginning of the mighty Mississippi River. And we are one of the few rivers in the world where you actually can do that. The river, when it leaves Lake Itasca, originally has always been around 35 feet wide, maybe. And over time, as tourists and visitors have come and waded across the river, we have slowly eroded the banks on the one side of the river as we go in and out, in and out. And I mean, children and adults play in that river sometimes for hours in a day, just that constant activity. And we have also had more heavy rain events in the last 20 years. And so sometimes we'll get a four to six to eight inch rain event and you combine the two of them and erosion has occurred on the shoreline. And so what used to be 40 feet wide was now over 70 feet wide. And it's our obligation and duty to preserve and protect that river, which includes its shoreline and the vegetation that's along the shore. And so we did a restoration project in which we brought the river channel back to its original width. And most of our visitors don't even notice that the project had occurred. Well, that sounds like a great destination for people this summer, spring and summer, as things get warmer here. Well, thank you so much, Connie. We really appreciate you coming and giving us some context about this tremendous waterway that we have starting here in our great state of Minnesota. So we claim it as our own. We need to know everything we can about it. Exactly. And we should wear it proudly that we are the beginning of the Mississippi. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, I will link to the story that was written in 2019 for Curious Minnesota in the show notes, in addition to some other articles discussing this headwaters question. Do you have memories of visiting Lake Itasca? Drop us a line at curious at startribune.com and we may read them on a future episode. 
Better yet, record yourself using the voice recorder app on your smartphone and email it to curious at startribune.com. And as always, if you like the show, please spread the word, and we appreciate any feedback you have at that same email address. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious. Curious.